0: this is a relay project real talk starts right now here's ryan jesperson
1: on this may 17th we welcome you to real talk you know alberta's got a dirty little secret And we're going to be talking about it today, and you don't have to necessarily live in the province of Alberta for this to matter to you, for this to be relevant to you, for this to potentially impact you. But if you do live in Alberta, then the impact of this is undeniable, whether the majority of us see it coming or not. In just a second, we're going to talk to energy media publisher Markham Hislop. He's in the middle of an investigative series that energy.media It's unethical oil, Alberta's secret shame. Now, this isn't some sort of partisan attack on oil and gas workers. This isn't some sort of attempt to get everybody off oil and gas in the next 20 minutes. But when we're talking about liabilities, environmental liabilities to the tune of $300 billion, we figured it's something that we need to be screaming from the rooftops. It's something that needs to be... At the top of everybody's list, you know, it's Alberta election time, right? So if you live here, chances are, if you haven't had a candidate or volunteers knocking on your door already, they will be soon. And we've been giving you, we hope, some ideas on questions that you can ask those candidates on issues where you can determine exactly whether or not that candidate or that party would be a good representative for you. The leaders are out there, Rachel Notley, Danielle Smith, campaigning for your vote, making promises around things like small business taxes, personal income taxes, uh, tuition caps, maybe. Healthcare accessibility, private delivery of surgical services, maybe. We're talking a lot about things that impact people and the files that they care about, health, education, employment, Families are wondering what they're going to do about inflation, how they're going to be able to keep their lights on and give their kids the standard or quality of life that they enjoyed, if not better. But how many people are talking about tailings ponds and orphan wells and oil and gas facilities that 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now might be a really big problem if words like R-Star mean nothing to you, then you're really going to want to keep it locked on Real Talk today. And if the word R-Star, that acronym that I just said, lights a fire under you, then I don't have to tell you what we're going to be talking about today is really important. That starts in 30 seconds. This episode of Real Talk is presented by our friends at Rello. Are you thinking about a career in real estate? I mean, honestly, at one point or another, who hasn't, right? If you want to find out about becoming a real estate agent, visit Rello.ca. That's R E L O.ca. Why? Well, Rello offers better real estate training, professional expert webinars, entertaining podcasts, and fantastic customer service. Rello's content is targeted so that you can meet exam criteria in the quickest amount of time possible rello will help you learn anytime any place at your own pace there's no better time to start your real estate career and there's no better place to do it than rello.ca markham hislop is the publisher of energy news And uh, kind enough to join us here in studio. It's nice to see your face in person. You and I have spoken a lot. You just reminded me it was eight years ago. uh, We had our first interview the first time that you were on my radar for the work that you were doing on on environmental advocacy on commentary on oil and gas. And I want to get ahead of something before we start. You've got your haters like any good commentator does you know like 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 any good investigative journalist does and some people are automatically going to try to write off this conversation as a partisan attack on conservatives as a partisan attack on past governments as an attack on the oil and gas industry so why don't we hit that head on in the first 10 seconds
2: Uh, absolutely and and ryan uh the last time we were actually in person was that uh, debate with Zipporah Berman. Do you remember that? I 2019. Do remember. So it's been a while. It's nice to see you again in person. Well, look, uh, if, I'm, if, if I am supposedly uh, an NDP partisan, as occasionally I'm accused of, then why did the NDP blackball me last year for a month? Because I wrote a column saying that Rachel Notley had no energy game. Where I co- What I do, I'm an old-fashioned journalist. I guess started in the late 80s, Ryan. And- what i do when i start on a investigative report like this is i go do the work i spend the time interviewing people so and since i started this in february after the imperial uh, oil curl leak got we uh, hit the news I went out and I started interviewing. I didn't interview like Greenpeace or environmental defense. I interviewed AER, former AER uh, managers and and employees. Alberta
1: Energy Regulator, yeah.
2: Exactly. I interviewed scientists. I interviewed environmental law professors. I invite engineers, gold-plated resources. That's good journalism. And I've got now over 30 of those in the can. And over the next few months, I'll be doing even more.
1: So people are going to be defensive, a lot of people right out of the gates. Yes they uh, because, will. Because yep. uh, the oil and gas industry, it's it's driven Canada's economy, it's it's undeniably driven Alberta's economy, it's employed uh, millions of people over the years across the country including so very many in Alberta. We can be proud of our innovation, we can be proud of what we've contributed. So once you start applying a badge like unethical, to the oil industry, people are going to get their backs up, and probably understandably so. So take us into this. Well, look, let's start with the
2: top line number. All of the environmental liabilities to date that the have accrued under the, for the Alberta oil and gas industry total $300 billion. So $130 billion for oil sands and the tailings ponds, $100 billion for abandoned wells. There's 82,635,000 abandoned wells as of this month. Mm. That's a lot of wells. Then there's surface facilities. It all adds up to $300 billion. And here's the thing that my series uh, adds to the conversation because others have talked about this. This isn't this isn't brand new. But the assumption has always been that we'll pay for it down the road, that there'll be revenue down the road. And I'm here to say, the industry has no intention of paying that. The industry has, that's what our star is about. It, in, when the NDP were in government, they lent the Orphan Well Association $235 million. The federal government, uh, gave the industry a billion dollars to clean up wells. That's one thing. But R-Star is about saying, we now, the taxpayers, will assume the liability and of the private companies and we will pay for them. That's the difference. And if you look at where the industry is allocating capital, like take the big companies like Synovus and Suncor and CNRL. If you look at their investor presentations, their free cash flow, so essentially let's talk, say profits, 75% of it, they are promising, will go back to investors. And some of them, like Suncor, say that if, you know, if, if we have a good year, we'll give you half of the remaining 25%. So 75 to 90% roughly, they're going to give back to investors in the form of higher dividends and share buybacks, and then they have to pay, the, their second priority is emissions reduction. Because the federal government says there's an oil and gas emissions cap coming. They know it. The market is telling them they need to get their emissions intensity down. There is no money, no money for remediating and reclaiming environmental liabilities. That's down at the bottom of the priority list. So if there's no money when times are good, and there's no money when times are bad, because there are no profits, where's the money? When will there be money for reclaiming 82000 abandoned wells, and on and on and on. There won't be.
1: So what could the future look like? Like, what's your worst-case scenario? What, what thought keeps you up at night?
2: Well, okay, so we could have a financial catastrophe. So at some point, if the government has to, to clean up after the industry and it, it you know, makes Alberta insolvent or threatens to make an, uh, Alberta insolvent, so we could have a financial catastrophe. If we don't do that, if we don't pay, then we wind up with an environmental catastrophe. You know, what are you going to say to Dwight Popovich, a farmer from Two Hills, Alberta, who has a well on his land? He can't retire because, no, he can't sell his farmland because it has a, a, an abandoned well on it. Mm. Thousands and thousands of farmers. So we'll have an environmental catastrophe. And let's not talk about the poisoning of, the, of northern Alberta with tailings ponds and so on. But what happens if we have both of those? What if we have a financial catastrophe and an environmental catastrophe? That's the doomsday scenario.
1: So how did Alberta get into this position? I mean, $300 billion for for the average person. I mean, to try to wrap your mind around this, roughly, not exactly, but roughly, uh, that amount of money represents six years of Alberta's entire budget, I mean, like the annual budget is around 50, 55 billion dollars. This is an enormous, you know, I mean, a third of a trillion dollars. How do you get into a jam like this? How is this able to happen? How does this go through successive governments, successive premiers, successive energy ministers over how many decades, Markham? Three, four, five decades? Between six and seven. How did we get to this point?
2: Okay, so from the very start, there were four key priorities that the Alberta government had. And this goes back to the SoCreds in the the 50s. The first one is expand and grow the industry and the profitability of the industry. That was number one. Number two is attracting capital because the, uh, the, the industry is capital intensive and then that gets spent in the economy and is very good for the business community. Number three is job creation and number four is revenues for the government because we all know that the Alberta government is very dependent upon oil and gas revenues. Environmental liabilities, way down on the, way down on the list. So what they did is when they set up the regulatory the mo- sort of the modern the, the first modern regulatory regime it got everything got filtered through those four priorities. So what they set up the the policy, the legislation, the regulation is world class. In 2014 CAP the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers hired Worley Parsons to do a, a comparison of oil ger- gas jurisdictions in different parts of the world, like Norway, UK, places like that. And Alberta, the, the design of the regime, regulatory regime was neck and neck with Norway for tops in the world. It's the implementation. It's the performance. Because what law professors are telling me is that uh, unlike more so than any other jurisdiction in the world, Alberta builds in Discretion. Right from the minister d- at the top down to the field inspectors and the subject matter experts, they all get to exercise discretion in the implementation of the rules. So in Norway, a rule is a rule. In Alberta, a rule is what do you need it to be, Mr. Oil and Gas Company? Hmm. And then you get aggressive oil companies that come in and they're, you know, they, they hound the regulator and they get, they, they get what they want because that's the priority and environmental liabilities tossing them shedding environmental liabilities has been top of the list in the industry for
1: decades i want to uh, talk to you about alberta's energy regulator and get your opinion on this your informed opinion on this back in march we spoke to uh chief alan adam from the athabasca on first Nation, and, and obviously this guy has been an advocate for his community for many years He's extremely frustrated. I certainly don't speak for him, but he's very frustrated about this 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 toxic tailings pond leak that's been polluting the land and the water where his community members hunt and fish and and live. Um, and he had this to say this was uh, after it was disclosed, after it was discovered that this tailings pond had been leaking for for at least nine months, and it had been on the radar of Alberta's energy regulator. And here's what Chief Adam told us. What gives you the confidence to call it a cover-up?
2: Because they they sent us an email nine months ago stating that they had discoloration of water in their system. And And at that time, they said it was just a minor error and that they would correct it and that the Alberta regulator was involved with it. And then when it kept on continuing to grow... Um, it was just recently that when uh, 5.3 million liters of tailings overspilled the berm, that the Alberta regulator couldn't be involved anymore because uh, this was beyond their scope, and they had to report it. And once that was reported, the Alberta regulator walked away with uh, from Imperial
1: and said, "You're on your own." Your thoughts? Well, that's not quite
2: what happened, because, but this is a classic example of how it works. So in uh, May of 2022, when Imperial discovered the leak, uh, they, went to, they reported to the regulator because the leak contained chemicals that were above the allowable limits. So they report it, and then the, the AER investigates. And they go out and they drill monitoring wells, and they're looking for the source, and they, they take samples. And they're doing this over the course of nine months. And Chief Adam is right. I mean, you know, they didn't inform the communities of the potential of of leakage into water bodies that affect the, you know, where they affect the fish and affect the animals that uh, that the communities consume. But this is how the regulator works. They don't, they're not transparent. They don't communicate. They did their own process with Imperial Oil, and probably the indigenous communities would never have heard about it if they hadn't then had a leak of 5.9 million liters. It's a spill at that point, and it's so big that the, the, both the company and the regulator couldn't keep it to themselves, and so they had to announce it. That's how we find out about the spill. But it's all internal. And the and whose priority is are they operating was the was the regulator operating in the public interest as it's supposed to by not by just dis- not disclosing that information or was it acting in the industry interest and that's what environmental law professors are telling me is why the AER has always been a captured regulator it works for the interest of industry. Not for the public. Uh,
1: in late March into early April, the Auditor General of, of Alberta, this is at the end of March, released a scathing report that uh, concluded that the management and regulation of end of life oil and gas liabilities by the AER, by the Alberta Energy Regulator, re- remained, quote, seriously deficient in several key areas. The average citizen would believe that even based on the name of the entity, that it could be trusted, that it would be looking out for Alberta's best interest, for Albertans' best interest, for the people, for the planet. I'm starting to feel, and I'm saying this facetiously, like the AER can't be trusted. Am I being sensational, or is that a valid feeling based on your research?
2: I have a source. I granted two sources anonymity. When I'm doing, and you understand, you've sure. been in the business, you understand what that means. So I can use their information, but I can't. I can't quote them. And the one I'm going to refer to was a highly placed uh, AER executive. He was in charge of some stuff, so that he sat at the board. At, not at the board table, but at the management committee table. And one time, he had to go to an executive committee meeting. And so he's sitting there with his colleagues. The industry representatives walk in and he paraphrase. And he, these are his words. The industry looked at them and said, we fund you. We own you. You'll do what we tell you to do. And according to my source, the AR representatives went, oh, okay. They acquiesced. They bent to the industry's wants. So I've got it right from the inside how that operates. And I've had all sorts of interviews with others who have operated, you know, worked with the AER who talk about how they get bullied, how the rules get bent no question that that's going on
1: so we're not trying to ruin everyone's day uh we're not we're not trying to to plant the seeds of hopelessness and then water them uh, so people feel like this is all a hellscape with no possibility of redemption i mean what needs to happen here how do you turn this around alberta is in a real jam once you're talking about 300 billion dollars uh, you know, you said the NDP lent the Orphan Well Association what two hundred and thirty-five million. million. Like that's just a drop in the bucket, right? It's one percent of what's necessary. Ottawa kicked in a billion dollars, which is a lot. That's 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 again a drop in the bucket. It's nothing. I mean, what the hell, Markham? You know, how does this story end? Well, look, let's because there's an
2: election on, and because our star was promo- proposed by Premier Danielle Smith because she was a lobbyist for the Alberta Enterprise Group prior to becoming premier. Everybody concentrates on the $20 billion number. Oh my God, it's a big number. How are we going to afford that? That's not right. That's not the key thing here. The key principle is, and you mentioned what the NDP did, you mentioned what the federal government did, but neither of those actions uh, implies that the federal the government is assuming responsibility for private companies liabilities that's what our star does our says that we will now those old wells that, that that aren't reclaimed that are just sitting out there maybe they're you know polluting whatever we'll now assume those responsibilities that's never happened before this is the thin edge of the wedge this is industry telling Alberta we're not paying for our liabilities. We want you. And remember, the Alberta 80% of the mineral rights in Alberta are owned by the government, by the public. So this is the industry saying, hey, you're the mineral rights holder. You've benefited. Now you should pay, pay some of the bill, and we hope all of the bill.
1: Who has the leverage here?
2: Well, under the current system, the industry has, has all the leverage. But, but according to the law... They are, whether it's in the oil sand side or whether it's in the conventional oil and gas side, the law says the industry has to pay. So if the law is enforced, industry has no leverage. Under the current system where, you know, the the regulator is captured and corrupt, then industry has all the leverage. Is it too late?
1: Okay, so... Oh, man, that makes me feel sick how long it took you to answer that question. It's too late, isn't it? Uh, uh, yes.
2: I, uh, where's the money going to come from? The money, you know, the, the companies are already giving 75% of their profits to investors. There's no money left. And the history tells us that they, have not, they don't want to assume responsibility for their liabilities over the last 60 years. Are they going to wake up one morning and have a revelation and say, "Oh my God, we have to start spending billions of dollars?" Here's another thing: The Orphan Well Association uh, levies the industry, 60 mil- million, 120 million dollars every year to remediate abandoned wells. OK, so last year it was 60,70. this year it's 120 or 130 million. People complained. The industry squealed at 130 million dollars. Mm. That levy should be billions and billions of billions of dollars. So, if they squeal at 120 million, what do you think that we, how much they would squeal if you said a billion or two billion?
1: Well, put it this way: so, I, I think our audience would be interested to know that that in Alberta's uh, 2022-23 budget, um, the provincial government increased health operating expense uh, spe- expenditures uh, up four uh, percent, increased it by 965 million which means the province of Alberta will spend $24.5 billion operating the health care system this year. So the point of me saying this is that it would take approximately 12 years if Alberta were to spend the same on environmental remediation and oil and gas cleanup as it does on health care, it would still take health care, the biggest single line item in the province. It would have to spend the same as it does on healthcare, on environmental cleanup, and it would still take more than a decade. And we all know, because this is a smart audience, that that's impossible, that that's right. not an option. So that's what makes me feel sick to my stomach as a civilian, so to speak.
2: Well, the only place that all that extra revenue is going to come from is the oil and gas industry. So why are investors demanding of oil companies around the world? This is not just Alberta. It's in Texas. It's in wherever. It's because the, they see that this is a sunset industry. They understand that the energy transition is, has accelerated to the point where in just two years, the IE, the International Energy Agency, says we're going to see peak road fuel demand. So that's gasoline and, and diesel. And that's 50% of global oil consumption. So the end of the era that gave us all of this prosperity is coming to an end. Now, it might not be till 2030 or 2035, or we don't know. We'll see how that plays out. But investors know that they need to get as much money out of the industry now before there isn't any money to be had. So if if investors are taking that money, what's left for Alberta to remediate its environmental liabilities?
1: I want to invoke Florida in this conversation. It's going to be a hard swerve. You're not going to see it coming, but but I want to ask you about something in just a second. We're talking to Markham Hislop right now. You can check out what he does. You can check out his series, his investigative series. It's a multi-part investigative report at energy.media. That's dot Media. More from Markham Hislop in just a second. I want to let you know this conversation is presented by our friends at Athabasca University. It's Canada's open university. You know, there's no better time Uh, to take that degree or that master's program than there is right now. If you've been thinking about going back to school, Athabasca University is a great option for you, regardless of your circumstance. Why? Well, number one, you can choose from 35 online master's and doctorate programs. It doesn't even matter if your undergrad was like, if you're like me, 25 years ago, still... They've got options for virtually everybody. And the coolest part about it, the only commute is your device. Athabasca University is designed to fit your life for ambitious people everywhere looking for more flexible approaches to higher education. Take your education to the next level. Athabasca University is Canada's anyone, anywhere, anytime open university for advanced learning. You can learn more about the admissions process. You can learn more about the programs and courses they offer by checking out AthabascaU.ca Does all this talk about energy transition get you thinking about what the future is going to look like in like a year or five or ten years from now? It's no surprise I'm going to tell you about Kubi Renewable Energy right now. They're Western Canada's busiest solar installer and they've just been certified by APEGA. That's the Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of Alberta. It means that their in-house team will engineer your project, your install, to ensure that quality is second to none and that performance is top-notch. Kubi is installing residential commercial, industrial, and agricultural solar energy projects in B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Northwest Territories, proudly based out of Edmonton and Kamloops, B.C. Hey, Johnny, how about a big shout out to the Kubi installer in Kamloops? Yeah, I heard about this. Who walked up to the CEO the other day Mm -hmm. when he was visiting B.C. and let him know that he applied to work at Kubi because he heard about him on Real Talk. We love it. Uh, CEO Kubiski told us that the installer is one of the best they've got and I was thrilled to hear it. Kuby's hiring right now, all hands on deck for their busiest season. It's spring installs. You can learn more at kubienergy.ca. Hey, tomorrow's a big day at the Friesen Brothers across Alberta, 16 different locations. Why? Because it's a one-day-only chicken-and-ribs sizzling sale. That's right, May 18th in Edmonton, Fort Saskatchewan, and Stony Plain. These are the three out of the 16 stores offering this special promotion it's a one-day sale on chicken and ribs. Edmonton, Fort Sask, and Stony Plain. Perfect timing for the long weekend. You can find out more at Friesen.com slash Season. And don't forget, their garden center's open now as well. More than half the plants they sell at their garden centers are actually grown right here in Alberta. That means they're perfectly suited for Alberta weather. Even the potting soil's made right here in Alberta. Friesen Brothers, for... Coming up on 70 years is proudly Alberta grown and Alberta owned. And our friends at Complete Care Restoration know that some of you, and we don't even see it coming right now, this is the worst. I've experienced it firsthand. The spring showers turn into floods, and all of a sudden, your older basement, that foundation that needs a little bit of work, well, it it starts to let in the water. And the next thing you know, your ankle or shin or knee-deep in water in your basement, that's something you got to leave to the pros. Whether it's flood damage, or maybe you're one of those families that's evacuated right now due to wildfire, our thoughts, our hearts are with you. The team at Complete Care needs to be your first call when it's time To restore life to what it used to be When it's time to rebuild Chances are your insurance policy Allows you to pick who does the work Make that choice for fire and flood damage Mold and asbestos removal Complete care restoration You can find them online At completecarerestoration.ca We're hanging out with energy media publisher Markham Hislop We're talking about his Multi-part investigative series Unethical oil Alberta's secret shame Here's the Florida angle. Tell me if you think I'm nuts. Ron DeSantis right now is warring with Disney. Now, if I had to put money on this, I, I, I might suggest that Disney's going to win this one. I know that DeSantis wants to drag this out and appear that he's playing hardball. But the fact of the matter is Disney is Florida's biggest taxpayer. Disney is one of Florida's biggest employers. DeSantis doesn't like the, quote, woke nature of the corporation, and so they're butting heads. It's playing okay for him politically right now, but watchers, experts are suggesting that DeSantis could be in real trouble. You have to assume that his advisors have told him that there could be benefit in going to war with Disney, in going to the courts against Disney, and that it could help pave the way for his road to the White House. What do you think the scenario might be for a premier or an energy minister in the province of Alberta to stand up to the oil and gas industry, to take the tone that you're taking here today, despite the fact that oil and gas is, quite frankly, the most important or biggest contributor to Alberta's fiscal bottom line. How do you think it would play? How do you think it would turn out?
2: There's no political will amongst the electorate. There's no political will amongst the political parties. Uh, Danielle Smith and the UCP have made it very clear that their priority is expansion of the industry. They're not thinking energy transition. They're not thinking that the gravy train's going to end someday. They want to expand production. that's not going to happen, but nevertheless, that's their position. Rachel Notley and the NDP are not that far behind them. There is nothing that that Notley and the NDP have said when they were in government— since they weren't over the last four years or since this campaign has started to indicate that they would take on the NDP. Now, yesterday, Shannon Phillips had a, a press conference, and I, I joined by Zoom, and I asked her questions about this. And she kind of tap-danced around it, and she said, yeah, we know that there are liability problems. There are problems with the regulator. Former environment minister. Yeah, yeah. former environment minister. Thank you. And, and so, you know, if I'm, in, if I'm back, if we're back in government— you know, maybe we'll kind of do something about it. It was very vague and it wasn't a commitment to actually. So there's no political will, even in the NDP.
1: But that's because the NDP can't come across as manifesting the prognostication that they would be an enemy to oil and gas, right? The biggest single factor I think that Rachel Notley has to fight against is the perception that she is an enemy of pipelines, an enemy of oil and gas.
2: Nobody in politics in, in Alberta is an enemy of the oil and gas industry. Right, You have to be, to some extent, and the NDP is as industry-friendly as, as the UCP. Oh, well, not as the UCP, but it's plenty industry-friendly. That's, that's not the point. The, there, there's no political will in the electorate. There's no political will in the political parties. And without that political will, the, gov- the Alberta government will never force the Alberta energy regulator to enforce the rules as they are written. So this has, I am not optimistic that this issue is going to be resolved so that industry actually pays for its liabilities. It's either they're not going to get, they're not going to get reclaimed, they're just going to sit out there and pollute, or the Alberta taxpayer is going to have to pay
1: mark doran I, I know you know who mark is he's been a fierce advocate for uh, environmental responsibility i think i think mark if, if you were to boil down what he wants am i similar to what you want which is just for for people to follow the freaking law i think and, and mark on our live chat right now i appreciate him watching says think about it if we allow lawlessness to continue we're screwed oil and gas cleanup alone will break us but if we follow the law no problem easy choice Nobody has to introduce new legislation. That's right. Am I am I naive to think that the law just needs to be enforced? Yes. And wonder why it hasn't been in past?
2: No, we've been talking about why it hasn't been.
1: But it's, it would be like letting people speed or drive as fast as they want on the yes. highway for 80 years and then all of a sudden start handing out speeding tickets.
2: That is correct. Yeah. It's a big change and there's no indication anywhere that that change is coming.
1: So I always ask guests in a situation like this where we're processing a lot. This is heavy stuff. It's it's quite frankly discouraging. It's infuriating. Uh, We worry about future generations. I mean, isn't it ironic that politicians are always talking about the future (laughs) generations? (laughs) You want to leave debt for your grandchildren's grandchildren? We don't seem to be too concerned about this disaster, right? What's the one takeaway? What's the number one takeaway? You know, that people are walking away from here, whether it's something they're going to ask political candidates at the door, whether it's a letter that they're going to write like Canadians do when they're pissed off, whether it's the way that their opinion will be shaped moving forward when they're talking to their friends around the campfire circle on May long weekend. What's the number one takeaway for a Real Talk audience member?
2: The industry has been saying for 60, 70 years that it will pay for these liabilities down the road. They won't. Industry is not in a position and has no intention to pay for its liabilities. And that's why they're trying to shift responsibility through beginning with the R-Star program. And the they will walk away from their liabilities before they pay for them.
1: Markham, I really uh, respect your passion and, uh, and and I respect your journalism, uh, for that matter, and I Thank appreciate you. you joining us here in studio. People can check out energy.media. That's E-N-E-R-G-I.media. Of course, we'll link to that in our show notes on the podcast and on YouTube so you can directly click onto Markham's coverage of what should be a way bigger story across the country most especially right here in Alberta. Thanks for joining us pal.
2: Thanks man and one little plug uh, yeah. a lot of our journalism is on our YouTube channel. Oh yeah. It's interviews so we they check out that and our podcast Energy Talks which is available on Google and Apple and most of the platforms
1: Let me say to people what they can do to really help you out number one they can subscribe to your podcast number two they can listen to an episode or two and then rate it and review it right. We'd love the four or five stars we'd love the comment.
2: Right and go on when you go on the the site there's a uh, sign up for our weekly update okay if they sign up that would be a big help
1: and then you help us sound smart in front of our friends indeed i will that's markham hislop a great friend of the show coming up in uh well like one minute uh, we're gonna check in with two individuals that have uh, lived experience and expertise in the realm of harm reduction this is day three of three that real talk has committed this week to facilitating conversations on safer supply addressing canada's opioid crisis that's coming up in just a second. But in the meantime, how about a reminder of why this part of the world is so worth protecting? You know, there's something that happens when you make your way into Jasper National Park. The the impact, the influence that the mountains have on your soul, uh, on your on your well-being, on your mental health. I mean, it really is remarkable. And every Wednesday, thanks to our friends at Tourism Jasper, we present My Jasper Memories. And right now, we want to let you know that this time of year is a beautiful time of year to visit the park because cabin capital of Canada, Jasper, is kicking off the season strong with all the cabin properties now up and running. Okay, so that means that the accommodations are wide open. Some of them close during the winter, but the options right now are endless. And we want to tell you about a few options that you have, different ways to get out and explore the park, and that includes on two wheels. Journey Bike Guides has now reopened their mountain bike tours for the season with multiple different lengths and difficulty levels. This is a fun and really active way to see more hidden gems around Jasper National Park. When it comes to Journey Bike Guides, I wanted to mention this Venture Beyond video series that Tourism Jasper produces. It's a very cool way to get to know residents of Jasper in a really personal way. You can check them all out on YouTube. Here's a bit of the feature on Alyssa from Journey Bike Guides.
3: I was told I will never bike again. That was really hard to fathom and understand because my whole world revolved around sports. As a kid, you just think you're invincible, right? I'd seen lots of specialist doctors. I'd gone for MRIs, chiropractors, physiotherapists, osteopaths. They all kind of said the same thing, that I was in it for the long run. There was part of me that was like, yeah, right, like I'll bike again. But it's also, it's hard not to feel defeat at the time. It only took a year or two, and I was like, I'm going to get back on my bike. I had a mission. My name is Alyssa Cummings. I live in Jasper, Alberta, and I own Journey Bike Guides.
1: Now, you can check out Tourism Jasper's YouTube channel for that full video feature and more of the Venture Beyond video series. They do such a good job. You know, a big part of what makes the Jasper experience so magical is the people Although the mountains don't hurt either. You can see the trails in many ways. A lot of them are snow-free by now. That means that hiking guides are also taking folks out on running tours. And Jasper Raft Tours is returning to the water this week. They're fun and gentle float tours. We've been on them with our little guys. You can do it with kids. Down the Athabasca River are perfect, absolutely perfect for the whole family. Now, of course, in this part of the world as well, the daylight hours are expanding quickly and uh, the reopening wildlife tours means that you also get a great chance of spotting some of Jasper's moose, elk, bears, and more in those stunning golden hours of morning and evening. You can learn more about the options that are waiting for you in Jasper National Park by checking out jasper.travel. And if you're posting photos or video of your Jasper memory, use the hashtag MyJasper and RealTalkRJ and you could see your memories featured on a future edition of My Jasper Memories presented by Tourism Jasper. Well, we've been promising a serious look at a, deadly serious issue in Canada. And that's why this week, for three days in a row, we've honed in on three different perspectives on Canada's opioid crisis, including on safer supply. It was journalist Adam Zevo in his piece in the National Post. We got a whole bunch of you riled up on Monday. Yesterday, it was Professor Ben Perrin, Stephen Harper's former justice advisor, who joined us. And in just a moment... We're going to talk to Guy Felicella and Dr. Andrea Sereda They have lived experience in different applications on harm reduction, addressing the opioid crisis in Canada. But first, we wanted to play some video, a development yesterday in the House of Commons, where our guest on Real Talk that day, Ben Perrin, saw his name invoked in an exchange between the leader of the official opposition, Pierre Poliev, and the Minister for Mental Health and Addictions, Carolyn Bennett. Here's how it went down. From the top, please. Order.
4: While the Prime Minister has sent inflation for gas heat and grocery soaring, there is one product that's actually come down in price, powerful opioids. The Prime Minister has spent $100 million on so-called safe supply. One global news reporter went into the street to find out where all these drugs are going. Turns out they're being resold to other addicts in order to raise the money to buy deadly fentanyl. Will the Prime Minister cancel the dollars for drugs and instead put the resources into treatment for addicts?
3: Yeah. The for Health. Mr. Speaker,
0: we are pretty fed up with this fight against evidence-based programs that actually are saving lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We cannot allow the Conservatives to take us back to the failed ideology of the past.
1: Yeah, look at that. Uh, you can tell that that's something that the minister feels strongly about. Uh, Dr. Andrea Sarita is a family physician in London, Ontario, at the Intercommunity Health Centre. Uh, if you read her Twitter bio, you will see that she is a safer supply prescriber. And we're going to learn more about that. Uh, Guy Felicella spent nearly 20 years uh, residing on the street in Vancouver's notorious downtown east side. Uh, He experienced multiple life-threatening infections, six drug overdoses. He's recovered with more than a decade of sobriety under his belt. He is now passionate about advocating for the vulnerable, and he is a highly sought-after international public speaker. It's a real honor and pleasure to welcome the both of you to the show. Doctor, can we start with you? Was there a feeling invoked in you when you see that exchange in the House of Commons yesterday? It's not always that passionate.
0: First off, I hope I can be as fierce as Dr. Bennett when I grew up and be like her. So um, it was really uh, validating to see her stand up for the evidence in in the House of Commons uh, yesterday, um, because I think that's what's being lost in all of this is is a focus on the evidence um, and the evidence refutes all of the claims uh, from the conservatives.
1: Guy, you're a success story. Uh, and, uh, not everybody who is a success story in the, in the context of, 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 addiction, quite frankly, or, or opioid addiction in particular wants to talk about it in front of thousands of people all the time, but that's exactly what you do. Can you give our audience a sense of how dramatic your turnaround was more than 10 years ago?
4: Well, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a miracle. Um, you know, i medical science would, would suggest that I shouldn't be here, but it really goes to the reflection of the, the evidence and the policies that, you know, harm reduction really kind of, you know, allowed me to get to this point. And without it, you know, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have over a decade sober. My children wouldn't be alive. The, the life that I have today trying to, you know, inspire others that we have to, you know, end the division between both sides and come together to support people whether they have an addiction or not. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's political opportunism um, that's changing things. And, you know, both sides shouldn't be about that. That turns into, you know, sadly, I've seen it happen with the HIV crisis. There's just a lot of death that'll happen because of it. And so, you know, we have to figure out that uh, bridge these gaps together to support both. Um, You know, I'm all for Uh, Supporting people uh, who use drugs And I'm all for people who struggle with an addiction To go into uh, treatment and recovery services as well Um, So that's just, you know, what I'll keep pushing And, um, you know, I believe in it Because it it worked for me And I've watched it work for countless others Uh,
1: Doctor, we spoke with Adam Zevo on Monday About his piece in the National Post Describes it as a, a drug fail He asserts the Liberal government's safer supply Is fueling a new opioid crisis you prescribe so-called safer supply. Can you explain to us how, how you got to that point, your conviction as a as a, a health professional, that this was the appropriate or, or evidence-based uh, way to do this, that this was the right way to do this?
0: Absolutely. Um, and so I work in London, Ontario at the London Intercommunity Health Centre. Um, And we have uh, the largest and longest running take home safe supply program in Canada. We started way back in 2016. And, you know, in 2016, I did not know the word safe supply or the word safe supply. Um, But what I was seeing is is since fentanyl, you know, came onto the streets of London, Ontario in 2014, 2015, I was seeing people die. Uh, my patients were dying or my community was dying um, and the traditional you know, addiction medicine interventions that, that I had at my disposal, they weren't working to keep people alive. And so, again, not knowing that safer supply uh, was a thing or a term at that time, we made a leap. We, we made a medical and moral leap um, and decided to prescribe clean medication, clean opioid uh, drugs to, to people who are using the fentanyl street supply. And we started off very slow and very cautiously, um, initially with just three patients who who were always having overdoses, were, you know, at critical junctures in, in their own health. Um, and again, our, our original, you know, objective was was to keep them away from from the fentanyl supply. But we felt like we saw magical improvements in their lives. They had no more overdoses, no more eMERGE visits. Um, Their HIV became treated, their mental health was treated. These aren't things that we were necessarily expecting in in that first group of patients, but we saw it happen and we saw it happen quickly. And so with those initial successes, we we slowly expanded the program um, until here we are in 2023 and and we have approximately 270 uh, people on Safer Supply uh, in London, Ontario. We have a wealth of published evidence, um, which shows the benefits for safer supply, um, the benefits in reducing overdose, uh, decreasing infectious complications. We see those go down by 50 percent, decrease in, you know, uh, involvement in criminalized survival activities and survival sex trade, uh, decreased hospital admissions, decreased emerge visits, improved mental health. All of our data is pointing in resoundingly positive directions for people who are accessing a safer supply.
1: Guy, it's so powerful to hear someone like you say, "Harm reduction saved my life." Like, I mean, it's it's a it's a black and white thing. Like, if it weren't for that, you would not be here. Uh, your kids wouldn't have a dad, or your kids wouldn't be here. I mean, we're talking life and death. I really appreciate you talking about, you know, the sort of the the political opportunism angle of this, because we know, we know how it plays. We know it's sensational. And we talk about how it's, it's been torqued. um, And I wouldn't necessarily say equally, but I'll say on both sides, right? Number one, the the liberals or the NDP want to give you free drugs. They want to flood the streets with free heroin. And then on the flip side, the conservatives don't care if you die, and it kind of gets into this really unproductive back and forth where everybody's basically calling the other person a heartless, soulless ghoul. What do you tell people when, when, when you encounter someone that, that maybe doesn't even know the details of your background, and they say, "Well, this Safer Supply Initiative, this is just flooding the streets with free drugs." Can you can you take us into how you might respond?
4: Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, let people know that you have to understand the people that you're working with first before you start just pointing fingers at the what they're using or what they're doing. And, and you, you know, when you know somebody or get to build a relationship with somebody and you see the immense amount of struggles that people have in their lives and then you see, you know, people getting on, you know, whether it's OAT or Zaboxin or Dilaudid or an IO program. And then you all of a sudden see uh, the other social determinants of health start getting addressed, like your health and wellness, your mental health, you know, uh, the ability to go fill out a housing application or get access to housing. And you start to see these things. Then you start to see the ability for somebody to go and work, you know, get on an outreach team and start to do the same things that, uh, you know, that. I started off doing, you know, and so it's really, when you actually look at it, what the reality is, is that, you know, we've just created this division on both sides. So, and until that piece changes, people are going to die. And guess what? Going into addiction treatment took me over a dozen times. And when you actually think about it, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to be sober either. Um, So there's a lot that goes into, you know, treatment and recovery as well. Um, And when you go through a three-month program, which I did, six-month program, nine-month program, multiple times, and still hell-bent on once I'm released, you know, finished, uh, the program I go back and I use again. Sadly, in this day and age, that means people die. And so for me, it's, I, I can't understand why people in recovery wouldn't support an avenue for people to access safer substances, because I'm always about giving people the opportunity, let them try again. And a lot of people are trying. I don't think people reflect that in today's day and age, just because we don't get the outcome on, you know, the, what people call successful as in, you know, abstinence, um, that part has to change because I, I will tell you, I just work with people. To me, I don't care if they use drugs um or not. And if they struggle with an addiction, I get them into treatment all the time. And the one thing in in treatment, it's a real challenge, and the first step is it's really hard. But once somebody gets rolling through it, the success that happens, even if you go back to using drugs, I always tell people, don't beat yourself up. We can try again. Let's get you into this, you know, harm reduction program where you can access safer substances, try to remove you as much as possible from the illicit market because that's what's truly killing people. So, I'm just, you know, try to explain that to them. And guess what? Like even my father-in-law who votes conservative, he was against harm reduction, but realized that his grandkids wouldn't be alive today and it completely changed his views and sadly that's what often has to happen in our society is that people have to experience something close or near to them before they start to change. And it shouldn't really, I wish it wasn't so, but sadly it is.
1: Doctor, what do you see, uh, you know, in in the context of your colleagues, Uh, is, is there consensus in in the medical community as, as far as you can tell that, that this evidence-based harm reduction approach is the right one, or, or do you find that that there's even necessary advocacy amongst your colleagues and your fellow professionals to convince people that this is, you know, what you believe to be the right way?
0: Uh, no, there is not consensus, and I and I think the National Post article really highlights that. Right, um, it's it, you know safer supply. Although we've been doing it for seven years, it's it's a new approach. It's an innovative approach. It's quite different from approaches that came before it. And so, you know, critical physicians should question um, how we are doing this. They should ask us for data. They should critically examine our data and our evidence um, to come to their own conclusions. And I would say, you know, physicians and other clinicians who have done that, who have read the evidence um, or who may have seen a patient dramatically improve in hospital or in community on Safer Supply, there is consensus among those physicians. However, we're really seeing this pushback um, and, and largely in the addiction medicine community, the uh, the medical addiction medicine community community. Um, with people who are not reading the evidence or acknowledging the evidence, um, and are really pushing back against safer supply with with anecdotes that have no data to support them, um, and my concern there is, is you know that those arguments are being uh, you know compared as equal or treated as equal. So the critical side that was interviewed in the National Post we have repeatedly asked them to engage with us and show their data and evidence around their claims around the harms of safe supply. Because as a program and as a safer supply community, if it's causing harms, we want to know so that we can address them and do our very best to prevent all harms, not just to individual patients, but to the community as well. And so we've tried really hard to, to engage with those folks we have not received that collaboration uh, back to us. We have not received uh, any data or evidence to support the claims that they're making in a very public fashion. Um, so in that manner, unfortunately, there is no consensus, but, but I do feel that um, you know the medical community is, is divided on, on those who are willing to read and interpret the evidence and those who are really focused on ideology.
1: Guy, when you say harm reduction saved your life, can we can we get specific? Can can we talk about some of the things that worked for you? Some of the resources that were there. And, I mean, you know, seven years ago. So I'm trying to do the math. The the program wouldn't have been available, the Safer Supply program, to you. What was it that that worked, and what was it that, that ultimately changed or saved your life?
4: Well, I I mean, you know, in the sense, the wording of Safer Supply that exists today really existed back then. It was just the essential of a doctor willing to give it to you. Okay. And so, I mean, that happened. I mean, uh, they couldn't keep me in a hospital with osteomyelitis bone infections. And so they created a program in the downtown east side, which is a community transition team, which was run by nurses and doctors, where you could actually use substances. You just had to be there to get your antibiotics every four hours for 24 hours a day for like eight weeks. This is just to like, so that I don't die. Um, and I remember the doctor uh, saying to me, listen, guy, how do I get you to come here to stay here? You live there and you know, how do I get you to be here every four hours? And I said, I just, I can't be in withdrawal. And so I was given, you know, morphine, dilated hydromorphone um, back then to actually go through the treatment plan and it works and it worked brilliant and here was a doctor that balanced his medical practice with a harm reduction practice because he realized guy's going to die if i don't do something and so that was more important to him and i'm still in contact with that doctor today also in the harm reduction front which obviously i'm very passionate about is the supervised consumption sites that people can access um you know being brought back to life there multiple times and you know witnessing that humanity and compassion of people who didn't judge me for you I was already judging myself for how I was living believe mm-hmm. me I didn't need to be piled on from anybody else I was struggling inside and that moment where uh you know I it was it took so long to get me back they actually were crying because they didn't think I was coming back and um when I saw that nurse with tears um, you know, my first response to her was just, why are you crying? And when she just said, Guy, I care about you, I just lost it and started breaking down. And I just, at that moment, I knew um, that I had to do something different. And so, really, harm reduction was the catapult uh, into the recovery that I have today. And, and, and it blended in beautifully because they weren't telling me every time I walked in, like, hey, you got to go to treatment, you got to do this. They just welcomed me in there and knew that, you know, that I was struggling as a human being already. And they were there to support me. And that support really kind of made me believe it gave me hope. And that hope turned into, you know, a vision. And I had a belief. And I was always trying. I, I mean, I, I can't state the facts enough that people are trying. And I was always trying. I didn't get the outcome that I was looking for either. But I just kept persevering and trying and until it was finally successful and sadly in today's day and age if we don't have that harm reduction safety net in our society people will die and that's the part that i just try to explain to people it's like look we can disagree on a bunch of different things but what we can't disagree on is that we have to you know do what's right for the person in their circumstance and that means just keep them alive whatever means possible because we just can't let somebody not have an opportunity.
1: Doctor, I'm not sure how closely you're following Alberta politics from Ontario, but there's been some interesting developments over the past number of years. Some supervised consumption services that were open and operating, uh, including the city of Lethbridge were defunded. Uh, Some of them that were slated to open lost their funding and didn't open. Well, at the same time, the conservative government at that time under then Premier Jason Kenny, had committed millions of dollars to essentially detox programs. So so they were moving the money around away from supervised consumption towards detox and saying, you know, essentially, ideologically, we believe that this is the way to do it. We acknowledge this is a problem, but we think this is the way to go. This manifestation of the conservative party under leader Danielle Smith is taking it a step further. I'm not sure if you noticed, but a couple of days ago, she promised to allow what's being described as mandatory drug treatment. In other words, if a police officer or a family member or a health professional believes that someone who's using drugs needs to be put into detox, I'm putting it casually, obviously, that person could against their will be admitted to a detox program. What's your assessment of the, I don't know how I put this without being so cynical, but I, I mean, Guy, your body language is saying it all. We'll come to you after the doctor. What's your assessment of this plan, doctor?
0: You know, I do follow Alberta politics and, and policy around this, and it keeps me up at night. Um, certainly, if, if, you know, first of all, I answer your questions around the removal of harm reduction services in, in Alberta, uh, we know that it's causing people to die. Um, In the fentanyl era, detox, um, detox alone kills people. Detox is very rarely successful, and Guy can certainly speak to this more than I can. Uh, Less than 10% of the time do people remain abstinent from drugs. So... What we do when we put people who are dependent on the fentanyl street supply into detox um, is we put them into forced abstinence and forced withdrawal. And typically detox is a week or two at best. um, And then maybe people move on to residential treatment. So in that time, what we've done is we have removed um, people's tolerance to fentanyl. So we've removed their tolerance to fentanyl, but we have changed nothing about the circumstances of their life. They're still housing deprived. um, They're still living in violent relationships. They still have all of these things going on. And so we remove their fentanyl tolerance and we send them back out into their lives. And what happens at that point is people overdose and die because they use the dose that they were typically accustomed to and it's far too much because we've taken away their tolerance. Um, And we see this all the time in in different scenarios when people are coming out of incarceration, we see these deaths. We see people coming out of hospital uh, who lost their their opioid tolerance in hospital and returned to their previous fentanyl doses and they die. So Alberta is really creating a situation that will lead to more deaths, not less deaths. Um, And that goes along with, with the removal of supervised consumption services. Alberta has also had a large political push against safer supply. They've actually rebranded it as the public supply of addictive drugs uh. or pe and I think that really frames the ideology around um around how they're approaching this issue. Um they're approaching it as as a moral issue, they're labeling addiction. Um And what should also be noted is a lot of the physicians who are interviewed in the National Post article also shared their anecdotes with a special committee that led to the public supply of addictive drugs uh, approach. And so those same anecdotes that I I mentioned that have no data, no scientific evidence to support them are now guiding provincial policy. And and that provincial policy is leading to death. I did see the article around involuntary treatment. um, And like I said, it, it kept me up at night. Um. Separate from just the medical implications of it, which I have explained around tolerance, um, you know, if if we're saying that anyone in the community, family member, anyone else can apply to have someone essentially incarcerated against their will and forced into a treatment that they do not consent to what world are we living in where that is true? Who gets to decide who needs to be forced into treatment? Who gets to decide when they need to come out? Who decides when they're well enough? Do they have to meet only certain criteria of wellness to, to be released from this, this medical incarceration? Um, I cannot see this going in in any way other than a violation of people's human rights um, and real harm to the community of people who use drugs. And and it's really weaponizing um,
1: an approach to care. Guy, how do you think that would have worked out, you know, 15, 20 years ago, had 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 a, a police officer that that knew you by name on the downtown east side, uh, you know, put you in the back of the car and, and, and taken you to treatment? How would that have worked out?
4: i wouldn't i mean i mean the optics of it right like uh, to hear we're going to help people get into treatment you know it sounds good publicly and politically i'm sure it's palatable for a lot of society but the, the forcing parts, like you know it, it, we're turning recovery is about attraction you're either attracted to what somebody has and that's what attracts you to be like wow i I want to try that. I, I'm looking for that. Right. And if you start forcing people into an environment that they not ready for, don't want to be in, how does that actually work with the people that are trying to be there? Right. It's like, you're going to create a prison industry environment uh, inside the treatment models, uh, which will make it completely, it'll just turn into, you know, uh, and, and honestly, I, I mean, it's like trying to privatize treatment uh, in a sense where it's almost like turning it into an institution. And I don't know, you know, any substance user out there or any person struggling with addiction, being institutionalized is terrible. It, it's not therapeutic, it's not life-changing, it's not supportive. And just the just just the way that going in through treatment as well doesn't guarantee that people will remain sober after. And so I honestly, if everybody could just go into treatment one time and get out and never use drugs again, hey, I'd say, okay, well, here we go. We got it. Let's just do that. But this is not the reality. And so, you know, I get it. You know, family members that witness people struggling with addiction and they're like, you know, their hands are up in the air. They're struggling. They're tired. You know, they're they're you know, I agree they're they're living a hard life. Um, as well. But but the one thing is, is that oftentimes I, I talk to parents a lot. I just say, listen, let me let me just keep trying to work with this individual. And that's this is really how recovery worked for me, is that I saw some guy in the downtown east side that I thought was impossible for this guy to ever get sober. And one day he showed up and he was sober, handing out coffee and sandwiches to people. And it blew me. That's what attracted me to, to start Looking at that, and if we go with an attraction rather than trying to promote something that's against people's will, you know, it, it'll sadly uh, the implications are disastrous for people who use drugs again, and you know, that's that's the part that worries me the most. <laughs>
1: Guy, you tweeted uh, just yesterday, I mentioned when we introduced you that you you speak publicly and, and to different ages and, and different sizes of groups, I mean all over the place, you tweeted yesterday you were at a school um, looked to me like you were speaking to hundreds of kids, um, I would imagine you spoke for like an hour, so I'm not asking you to go through it all but what's what's your main message to when you have a young and captive audience but this is an, an audience, we've all been there we're in our teenage years into our 20s we're curious about things, some people are dealing with trauma, there are a lot of reasons why people wind up where they wind up and and sometimes despite uh hearing you know the most powerful testimony from people with lived experience but what's your key message what's the main thing that you convey in speeches like the one yesterday
4: uh you know just you know multiple approaches you know uh ending stigma harm reduction recovery treatment uh anxiety depression overcoming the obstacles you know uh people always remember how you made made them feel you know being kind Uh, Human connection is is a a big one. And, you know, um, and, and the reality is, is that, you know, we do need support in order to face the challenges together that we have as people. And I'll tell you, out of every talk that I do, and this was a talk over 600 kids, there is a lineup of kids who have been impacted by stigma, treated poorly because some do use substances and hide it. Some are going through withdrawal. Some have parents that have overdosed and died. You know, one of the most gut-wrenching, um, sad. Uh, where I always talk about that drug users aren't bad people. We just often have challenging circumstances. I had a sixteen-year-old boy come up to me, and, and he was, he was so thankful. He says. My dad died of a drug overdose in, in 2020, and I don't share that with people mm. because of how people view it. But I want you to know that uh, what you said really made me feel good. Uh, and I, and he said, my dad loved me. I know he had a challenging life, but he still was my dad and he still did his best. I mean, how do you you understand that we are passing this kind of language of stigmatization and discrimination against people who are struggling into the generation in the rear your mirror. I just hug this kid. And so in a lot of my talks, it's a lot of handshakes, a lot of hugs, a lot of emotions, and a lot of people who just never gave up in believing in Guy. And you know, my alias on the street, I always say this to kids, because my alias was Tony, everybody in the downtown east side knows me as Tony. They won't call me Guy. And I, I don't even correct them anymore, but I remember one kid asked me, "Why did the, why did you go by the name Tony?" And I said because it was too painful to go by Guy. Mm. And now I'm okay with being Guy. And I'll continue to fight for the rest of my life, for all those kids, all the lives lost, all the people struggling. I won't give up. And I will try to counterbalance misinformation constantly. It's what I'm driven to do. And my experiences in life have really put me in a position um, you know, to give people a balanced approach that we need everything. And I don't dispute the recovery industry could be a heck of a lot better across Canada. 100%. I want that for people. I want people to get immediate access when they want to access it. And I want people who are using substances to have immediate access to safer substances. I want it. I want it both. And if we can do that, I'm telling you, we will save a boatload of lives and change the direction in the future so that we don't leave this behind for our kids, your kids and other people's kids, because this isn't going to go away.
1: Hmm. Not even close. I so appreciate that guy thank you so much uh, before we thank both of you for your time uh, dr we should note that you're presenting on a webinar coming up in just a few minutes so we've got to let you go Every, everybody wants to hear about your expertise on this and other subject matter but I want to make sure that we don't leave anything on the table uh, I want to make sure that we've we've touched on everything that you believe to be important or relevant to this debate it's something that Canadians can't ignore we had the mayor of Edmonton sitting in this studio beside me just a few days ago pointing out that uh, you know two people people in Edmonton, just in this city, two people are dying every single day uh, from drug poisoning, from overdose. Uh, It's something that we cannot ignore and must not ignore. Uh, Doctor, what's something that maybe we haven't touched on, but something that you think is extremely important for people to keep in mind as they not just form their opinions on this, but but perhaps action, you know, as they decide how they're going to feel about this and what they're going to maybe do about it.
0: Yes, and and thank you for giving me this last opportunity to speak. Um, I think I I would like your viewers, your listeners, all Canadians to remember that we have over 35,000 people dead to this crisis since the beginning of it. 35,000. Overdose is now the leading cause of death in in men under the age of 40. We lost 42,000 people in World War II. We're at 35,000 dead from this crisis. We have monuments to to World War II across the country as we should, Um, so think of those lists of names. If, If you approach those monuments, the names are engraved, they're tiny, and there are so many of them, and we have almost as many names who are now dead to this crisis. There's enough work for all of us. We need to collaborate. We need to provide a full spectrum of solutions from abstinence to rehab to methadone to suboxone to safe supply. We need everything. We need this full court press from all clinicians, all community members taking care of people who use drugs to prevent that 35,000 from becoming 42,000, 60,000, 100,000. So thank you.
1: So very well said. Uh, Guy, my man, last word to you.
4: Be kind everybody, you know. People
1: people remember how you made them
4: feel. That's really the essential thing of life to transform somebody's life. Just sit down and, you know, be kind to each other and take care of each other because we're in challenging times and don't let the the politics sway you either way. Look at the person and the people and, you know, do what you can to to do your best by them. And that's what, that's really what it's all about. It's not, not our rocket science here.
1: I was going to say, isn't it amazing that the lessons that they teach us in kindergarten sometimes still <laughs> apply often still apply uh, when we're grown ass adults. Uh, that's Guy Felicella uh, and Dr. Andrea Sarita, both incredible human beings. I encourage you to give them a, both a follow on Twitter uh, and to let them know what you thought about this interview. Thanks to both of you for your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks you for did. having us. Have a good day, guys. You as well, Guy. Thanks a lot. That's powerful stuff. This really powerful stuff. You look at the death toll of World War II. You look at the opioid crisis in Canada. And know, when Guy talks about this as people are going to die if we don't do this, you wonder why more people don't have a fire lit under them when it comes to the conviction of it. But he's right. And you know this, too. The politics of this have almost taken over. You know, in any other healthcare scenario, we look to evidence-based approaches and we adopt them, right? Like, what did we do throughout COVID? We understood as best we could what it would take to stop the spread and everybody bought in. You know, for the most part, people that are diagnosed with cancer will consult with their oncologist and ask what is the best evidence-based approach to fighting this cancer, with any diagnosis, that's how we approach it. With any health issue or epidemic, that's how we go at it. But for some reason, this one, it's not that way. Maybe it's time that we invite the politicians to take a back seat while the rest of us decide the best way that society needs to move forward on this and use our influence, including with our vote, to send a very clear message to lawmakers on what our priorities are. I received an incredible message from an audience member who I'm going to keep anonymous. uh, But they wrote in uh, this after our conversation yesterday with Professor Perrin. They said, uh, I just wanted to say thanks for that great interview with Ben. He offered a sophisticated and passionate rebuttal uh, of Adam Zivo, which I also listened to. This audience member says, though it was very policy focused, it was also very emotional for me, says this Viewer, and I would imagine many Albertans, says our daughter has struggled with addiction. Uh, in her case, alcohol, not drugs. She's now almost two years sober and recently celebrated her 28th birthday, but there was a time when we never thought she would hit 30. We'll call her Lindsay, is now working as an addiction peer counselor and pursuing further education in the field. And, and Ben Perrin was exactly right, that drugs or alcohol are the focus, but the root cause is trauma disproportionately indigenous representation too many survivors of sexual and physical abuse Lindsay had the benefits of a stable family with financial resources but it still took many many attempts at treatment at rehab and covid sure didn't help before it finally clicked and even now it really is one day at a time this audience member says so what about those without those forms of family support Just wanted to let you know how much we appreciate those conversations on Real Talk. They truly do affect people's lives. We appreciate those of you that take the time to let us know how these interviews resonate with you and to let us know what other subject matter you'd like us to take on on the show. You can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. If you are a regular live streaming audience member, whether it's on the Mixler live streaming audio app presented by California closets, or whether you were on our YouTube live chat, you may have noticed a name conspicuously absent. Brenda Wamsley was almost every day. Johnny, wouldn't you say the first to sign in every single morning, every single morning. Brenda was the first to sign into our live stream. She would wish us all a good morning and infuse such positivity, such energy into our team, and into this entire show. She sent me an email back in late December where she let us know that she had been planning on participating in our private Patreon Zoom Christmas party. It's a tradition we have every single year where our Real Talk Patreon supporters get together. It's it's not on air. It's not for public consumption. And we just enjoy each other's company. And she said, I did uh, intend on taking part, but my health needs to take priority. She said, I've just been called in for CT scans. She said, I wanted to let you know how much I enjoy Real Talk and how much I enjoy being part of your live audience through YouTube. Brenda said, my family and I have been put into a whirlwind. She'd been hospitalized at the beginning of November and told during that ER experience that she was experiencing a blockage and ultimately cancer. Well, we've heard from Brenda's husband, Ray, who let us know, unfortunately, in the first week of May that Brenda passed on and he knew that there would be audience members that would appreciate knowing where Brenda had gone. We just wanted to take a second to convey our heartfelt sympathies to the Wamsley family and to let Ray and their family know how much we valued Brenda's contributions to this show and to this community I miss seeing her name in our live chat. I miss her emails. And our thoughts and our prayers are with the Wamsley family as they adjust to life without wonderful Brenda. You can see it on our YouTube right now. Look at that smile. An incredible smile. An incredible lady. Brenda Wamsley. We'll miss you. These conversations happen because Real Talk sponsors like our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park support this show day in and day out. And they want to let you know that as the temperatures are rising, it's a perfect time to stop into a DQ in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount. Or Baseline Road in Sherwood Park and try one of the new DQ Summer Blizzard treats. Two new flavors, including Reese's Caramel Pretzel and Caramel Fudge Cheesecake. They're also bringing back three returning favorites. That's cotton candy, s'mores, and choco-dipped strawberry. These blizzards will be available all summer long course the smart move here is to make sure that you try every single one of them over the next few months you'll find those at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park very cool to hear from our friends at Apex Automation got a text from them literally just this morning they let us know that because their culture their corporate culture has always been centered around growth and continued diversification Some members of their team have been requesting opportunities for personal and professional growth south of the border. And so, Team Apex, that's Apex Automation, is opening a new office in Houston, Texas. Exciting times ahead for Apex Automation. It's their entry into the American market. From Team Real Talk to Team Apex, congratulations. If this is catching your attention as a professional engineer or maybe someone just about to graduate from engineering school, maybe you're at the U of C, maybe you're at the U of A, maybe you're at UBC or somewhere else in Canada, Apex Automation is hiring right now. And you can check out their website at apexautomation.ca we're getting set for a big backyard redo and we're trusting it to the team at eden landscaping it's been amazing going through the design process with them and seeing their team take our ideas and bring them to life through that 3d planning process the renderings are absolutely spectacular I'm going to be honest with you. We don't have the biggest budget for this project. And so we've had to adjust the plan a couple of different times. And it's been an absolute pleasure working with Mike and his team. They truly care about what they do. You can learn more about Eden Landscaping and request your quote today for full service custom landscaping by visiting landscapeedmonton.ca. And finally, we're putting out the call to Real Talkers for Trash Talk coming up on Friday. This is your chance to blow off steam, but but not in the usual way. Not just like your girlfriend on the phone or or not to the boys on the golf course. This is a chance to have thousands of people hear what needs to be said it's trash talk presented by local environmental services you can send us your rant to talk at ryan it's how we wrap up every friday episode right here on real talk local environmental services is operating across the prairie provinces in edmonton and area white court area regina and area and the footprint continues to grow if you're a decision maker small business Big business, or even a government decision maker on behalf of an entire community, why not keep it local and request a quote today at localenvironmental.ca? Coming up on Thursday's Real Talk, we're really, really looking forward to getting the Real Talk group chat roundtable together. We're going to take uh, a look at some of the biggest stories making news on the campaign trail across the province of Alberta and bring you unedited uncensored unflinching commentary on that and then on Friday the strategist roundtable back to back jacks right here on your home of real election coverage on real talk
0: real talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson executive producer Josh Dunford technical producer John Hicks General Manager Katie Cook Chivers. Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources Lena Shepherd. Website Design Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson.